Tonight we're looking at uh, two chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 19 and chapter 20. And we're still in that section of judgment oracles where Isaiah is talking about the Lord's sovereignty over the nations and how he is going to deal with a lot of the, the traditional enemies of Israel that they've had in times past. And in chapter 19 and chapter 20, Isaiah is dealing specifically with Egypt, and then in chapter 20 is going to mention Cush, which we saw Cush last week in chapter 18, and Cush is probably the region just to the south of Egypt, what we might consider uh, modern-day Sudan. Uh, Sometimes in Scripture they're referred to as the Ethiopians, uh, but it's rather large area south of Egypt along the Nile River. And during this particular time in, in history, during Isaiah's time, the Cushites or the Ethiopians had uh, exerted some dominance over Egypt. And, and so Egypt very rarely saw itself in this position where they weren't exerting their influence on the region. Rather, they were being subdued by others around them. And so this is in chapter 19 and chapter 20, you kind of have a joint message against Egypt and Cush, but it's because Cush is kind of over Egypt at this time during Isaiah's lifetime. And when we start thinking about Egypt, Egypt and Israel have a long history, don't they? Going all the way back to the time of Abraham, we see Abraham going down into Egypt during a time of famine at uh, one particular time. Uh, We see, and that was kind of a foretaste of the time that later his descendants would come to Egypt and spend uh, there as well. And so going all the way back to Abraham, we see him there. And then we also see um, in the time of of, uh, captivity where the the Israelites had gone to Egypt because uh, of famine, just like Abraham went down there because of famine. And uh, they ended up staying there for many generations, about 400 years. And we know how the Egyptians treated the Israelites, don't we? The Egyptians treated them incredibly cruelly and ruled over them as harsh taskmasters, basically beat them into submission. Egypt, they were not, they didn't treat Israel well, did they? And so now Isaiah is revealing some of what God is, has in store for Egypt in the future. So Egypt is going to come under the judging hand of God, just like Assyria, just like Babylon, just like these other nations that had afflicted God's people at different times. Egypt, in God's time, is going to receive its due as well. And so this is Isaiah's message about Egypt. And uh, we see in chapter 19, mostly about Egypt, and then in chapter 20, he brings in Cush into the discussion as well. In 19.1 through 15, we see in the first part a message of judgment against Egypt and against its leaders. And so there's a rebuke to Egypt in verses 1 through 4. And specifically, it, it calls out Egypt's false worship and rebukes Egypt for their trust in their false gods that were nothing and could not help them in the day of their trouble. And so Exodus 19 verse 1 says a prophecy against Egypt. 
See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. This phrase, uh, the Lord riding on a cloud, is a symbol in Scripture, other places in Scripture, but also it's a symbol in the ancient world of, of deity, of authority. And interestingly enough, this phrase of riding on the clouds was even used of Baal in Canaanite worship. So why would this be used of God? Why would, why would Isaiah use this of God? I think it's intentional to show, no, there's only one real God who rides on the clouds. You can, you can say Baal rides on the clouds. And even in Egyptian religion and mythology, they had uh, gods that they worshiped, gods of the sky that they worshiped. And I think this is intentional. Isaiah is saying, no, there's, there's really only one God who rules over earth and sky and who rides on the clouds. There's only one authority, and it's the Lord of heaven and earth. And so the idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. It's interesting, isn't it, that, and I think we'll see this even more in the next couple of verses, that there are some uh, hints and maybe some allusions back to the time of the Exodus, when, when God showed his power over Egypt. And where, uh, when we were preaching through Exodus in the, the section of the plagues, I tried to, to show that, that many of the plagues that God brought, many of these signs and wonders, they were specifically directed at some of the false gods of Egypt and showed that, that the Lord was superior over the false gods of Egypt. And so Isaiah's alluding to that here and then talking about a future time when God's going to judge Egypt again and their idols are going to fall before the true power of the universe and the hearts of the Egyptians will be afraid. He says, I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Seems to uh, describe some sort of civil unrest or even civil war taking place within Egypt that, that a part of Egypt's downfall will come from within, fighting amongst each other. The Egyptians will lose heart and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. So they're going to go looking for a solution to their day of trouble. They're going to go to their gods. They're going to go uh, to their temples of worship. They're going to uh, engage in sorcery and divination to try to find out what to do. And the answer that they're going to get back is silence. Nothing. Because their gods aren't going to answer them. They're not going to receive any counsel from them because they're not real. So he says, I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Now, there's some disagreement about whether or not this king that's mentioned in verse four refers to anybody in particular. Um, one suggestion is that it refers to uh, the Cushites who are exerting their power and dominance over Egypt at this time. Another suggestion is that it's Assyria to the north of Israel that was also exert, exerting dominance and authority during this time. But there's not real 
uh, there's not real a, a consensus on who this king might be. And it could even be that it's some future king that's not even specifically mentioned and hasn't even come yet that is going to be the Lord's judgment on Egypt. And so a rebuke against Egypt and specifically against their false worship. Then in verses 5 through 10, we see that the judging hand of the Lord is going to come on Egypt's source of wealth and on their, the Nile River, which was their life's blood running through the middle of the country and the effect that that is going to have on their economy and on their industry. And so the waters of the river will dry up and the riverbed will be parched and dry. If you're talking about Egypt and you say the river, you don't even have to name it. It's, it's the Nile. And so it's going to dry up. It's going to be parched. The canals will stink. The streams of Egypt will dwindle and dry up. The reeds and rushes will wither. Interestingly, when you hear that the canals, probably the offshoots, the tributaries off of the Nile, and you, you read about them stinking, it reminds me of Exodus, doesn't it? You got, you got the, the river turned to blood. You've got all these frogs coming up out of the river and then polluting the land and, and this great stench throughout the whole land of Egypt. Verse 7, also the plants along the Nile at the mouth of the river, every sown field along the Nile will become parched, will blow away and be no more. So the way that the Egyptian economy basically worked was the Nile River and everything along the Nile was the fertile ground. And there were specific times of the year when the Nile would, would overflow and that extra water would go out into the fields. And so everything on either side of the Nile was the most uh, fertile, um, the best place to plant and harvest crops. And this is saying that every field that's sown with seed along the Nile is going to be dry, parched. It's going to be dust, tumbleweeds being blown away. The fishermen will groan and lament. All who cast hooks into the Nile those who throw nets on the water, they will pine away. So the fishermen are going to be frustrated. No fish. Those who work with combed flax will despair. The weavers of fine linen will lose hope. Why? Because the crops aren't producing. You know, one of the great crops of Egypt is cotton, right? Egyptian cotton. Um, in fact, there's a kind of cotton that, if my memory serves me right, there's a kind of cotton that is only grown in Egypt and Arizona because of the climate, because of the, the harsh desert climate, and it's, it's just specific to those regions. And so Egypt is known for their cotton. But the people that work in them, that, that weave them and sew them, they're going to be out of jobs because there's no cotton. There's, no, there's nothing to, to make clothing out of because the crops haven't grown. The workers in cloth will be dejected, and all the wage earners will be sick at heart. In other words, total devastation, right? So the gods of Egypt, they're not going to help you. Everything that you trust in, in terms of your economy, your money, your job, uh, your source of life and sustenance, it's all going to be taken away. Your world is going to be rocked, in other words. Then we see a specific rebuke against uh, Egypt's leaders, and especially their wise men. The officials of Zoan are nothing but fools, 
uh, one of the commentaries I read suggested that Zoan was perhaps the capital city of Egypt during this time in Isaiah's lifetime. And so the counselors, the wise men, he says they're fools. The wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings? Again, there are some reminders here of um, Joseph in the time of Egypt, isn't there? When Pharaoh has his dreams and nobody can tell him what they mean. So he gathers all his counselors and all his wise men, but only Joseph can come and tell him the meaning of the dreams. So the leaders of Egypt, they're going to be at a loss. They're going to go asking their counselors and their wise men that are supposed to know all this great knowledge, and they're not going to be able to help. Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. The officials of Zoan have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of her peoples have led Egypt astray. So not only do the the wise men, the counselors of Egypt have no answers, they have false answers because they've led the people down the wrong path. The Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. They make Egypt stagger in all that she does as a drunkard staggers around in his vomit. Nice picture, isn't it? Basically, what this is saying is that the Lord is intentionally, in this time of judgment, the Lord is intentionally causing a mist, a darkness, a dizziness, if you will, to come on the the leaders and the counselors of Egypt so that they give bad advice. They give bad advice. They're like, like you would never follow a, someone who is drunk to guide you along the path. That's what these um, counselors are compared to. And they're just, they're drunk. They're wandering around. They have no idea which way to turn, which way to point the people. There is nothing that Egypt can do, head or tail, palm branch or reed. In other words, it doesn't matter which way you turn. It doesn't matter which advice you give. The Lord's judgment is going to come. That's, that's kind of the overriding message is God's judgment on Egypt is going to come, which communicates something important about God, doesn't it? That he's the sovereign over all the nations of the world. And that's an overriding theme in chapters 13 through 23. God is the ruler over all the nations of the earth. And so Egypt can do what it wants to do. They can turn to their gods. They can turn to their money. They can turn to their wise men and nothing's going to help them in their time of trouble. But the amazing thing about this passage is that God's hand of judgment is going to come on Egypt. But in the rest of the chapter, Isaiah points to a future time, even beyond that, in which Egypt will be blessed. And so that's, Almost the same way that in other places in Isaiah, Isaiah gives a message of judgment to Judah, God's people, but then says after that, there's going to be a remnant. And here's the future glory that the Lord is going to do for Jerusalem. Amazingly enough, he has a similar message for Egypt, that after this time of judgment, there is a future time in which God is going to bless this place but he's going to bless it in conjunction with the universal worship of God, which is going to take place all over the world. 
And so in that day, the Egyptians will become weaklings. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. Now, this is an amazing prophecy, verses 16 and 17. Because if you were to ask anybody who knew anything about world affairs in the 730s, 720s BC, and you were to say, what do you think about the strength of Judah? What do you think about about Jerusalem's chances of taking over their neighbors and expanding their borders and their territories? Everybody would have laughed. At this time in history, Judah has no strength. Judah is calling out to help from other places. When they should have been calling out to help from the Lord, they were looking for alliances and treaties with other nations to come and help them and bail them out. So Judah has no strength right now. The dominant ones right now are Assyria, and Egypt has always been strong at different times, but even now they have been overcome by the Cushites. But Judah, they're like just a little pea floating in the ocean, and they're, they're nothing right now. And yet the way that this prophecy displays the future is a complete reversal of that. The way that God shows it is Judah will be the dominant one. And when you mention the name Judah, everybody else will quake in fear. And Egypt will bow in submission to Judah. And that's a complete reversal too of the time of Israel in Egypt, isn't it? So in Egypt... Israel was serving Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They were, they were enslaved in bondage. But Isaiah is predicting a time after Egypt's judgment by God that Egypt is going to come under the reign of Judah. It's a, it's a picture of a glorious time in which Egypt is brought down and subdued and Judah becomes the, the centerpiece of the world. In that day, Five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the city of the sun. Now, this is a shocking statement. Essentially, what Isaiah is saying here is there are going to be five cities. He doesn't name them. Probably uh, the idea is here some of their prominent cities, their leading regional cities, and instead of speaking Egyptian, they're going to be speaking Hebrew, the language of the land of Canaan. And in that day, that was completely unthinkable. Just like to say Judah is going to rule over Egypt, that was unthinkable to say. So also was it unthinkable to say the Egyptians are going to be speaking Hebrew. And they're going to, they're going to swear allegiance, loyalty to the Lord Almighty. Who's that? That's Yahweh the one true Lord God of the heavens and the earth. And one of them will be called the city of the sun. And, and that could be a reference to Egypt's religion. Um, they worshiped Ra, the sun God. They worshiped others, Osiris. They had these gods that they worshiped. And many of them are represented by the sun, especially Ra. And this could be a kind of a, a rebuke against Egypt, showing that, that this city 
named after one of your great gods is going to be worshiping the Lord, the Lord Almighty. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. In other words, Egypt is going to turn to the Lord in worship and in devotion. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and he will rescue them. Now, did Isaiah understand the full implications of those words? It's hard to know for sure. He's the one that told us of the suffering Messiah. He's the one that told us of a child will be born and on him, the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called the Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And he says here, there's going to come a time when God, after he judges Egypt and after he has humbled them, he's going to send them a rescuer. He's going to send them a savior. Well, in the big biblical story, we can see that that's Christ. We can see that Egypt's ultimate rescue and salvation, just like any place in the world, is going to be only through God's son and God's servant that he has sent into the world. And so they're, they're going to be rescued, but they're going to be rescued by one that God sends, not by one that they send or that comes out of them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. I think make, make himself known in a knowledge of his word and in a saving sense, he will make himself known to them. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. It's, a, it's language of faith. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. Now, Isaiah is speaking in Old Testament terms when he's talking about sacrifices and grain offerings, but he's probably pointing to a time well beyond the the future even to us. And he's talking about, I think, the end, the culmination of all things when God comes down and he blesses Jerusalem. He brings Jerusalem down, doesn't he, in Revelation. And so Jerusalem becomes the center of the whole world and the whole world is related to Jerusalem and related to God as they worship him. And as they worship him, they find peace and prosperity and satisfaction and joy. So the Egyptians are going to turn to the Lord. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. That's much like Exodus, isn't it? That's just, that's like the language straight out of Exodus. He will strike them with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. That's powerful, isn't it? First, he humbles them in judgment, but then he will heal them in salvation. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. So by grace, God heals them. Now, did Egypt deserve that healing? Not a chance. This, this, is, a, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because Egypt, they were some of the cruelest people to the Israelites. They were some of the worst enemies to God's people throughout history. And yes, they're going to face their judgment. But again, there's going to be a remnant among them, isn't there? 
there's going to be a remnant among them, among the Egyptians. And they're going to be saved, even though they didn't deserve it. They're going to cry out in humility and God's going to rescue them. That's the gospel. They cry out to God for salvation and he heals us. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. And the Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. Again, striking, striking language. This is, I mean, to put it in modern day terms, it'd be like saying um, North Korea becomes a great democracy and becomes our greatest ally. And so you've got these enemies, Assyria and Egypt, they were in perpetual hostility with one another. And Israel in the middle was kind of like the, the baton that kept getting passed back and forth between them. They were, Assyria would exert influence over Egypt and they'd go through Israel to do it. Egypt would exert influence over Assyria and they'd go through Israel to do it. But now, instead of Israel being a battleground, it's going to be the highway. It's going to be the thoroughfare that joins these two former enemies together and makes them friends. And not only friends, but worshipers together. And this is not saying the Assyrians are going to start worshiping Ra, the god of Egypt. Or, um, or Egypt is going to start worshiping Marduk, the, the gods of the Assyrians. No, they're both going to come together and worship together, but who are they going to be worshiping? the Lord God of Israel. Man, this is, this is like Revelation 5 transported back into, into Isaiah 19. What's Revelation 5? John looks and he sees a vision of the throne of God and around the throne are peoples from all tribes and nations and tongues. And what are they doing? They're there worshiping God together. It's like that great scene is transported back here in Isaiah and Isaiah is seeing it and he's saying, all of these peoples, enemies now, then joint worshipers of God. That's powerful. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. Now we throw Israel into the mix. Not just Assyria and Egypt join, but even Israel. They're all united. They're allies, and they're allies under one God, one faith. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Isn't that something? That is amazing. I mean, he's, he's putting them in this language of love and language of covenant, language of mercy, on equal plane with Israel. Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork. Israel, my inheritance. And wow, it, it looks forward to um, the New Testament, doesn't it? in Ephesians 2, where Paul says, God's going to take all these different peoples, Jews and Gentiles, and he's going to make one new man. He's going to bring them together under the Lord Jesus Christ in his fold, and he'll be their shepherd. It's a beautiful picture. So God's going to judge Egypt, but even for Egypt, those scoundrels that, that mercilessly uh, uh, oppressed Israel, God shows grace to them. There's hope in there for us, isn't there? That no matter how much we deserve it or don't deserve it, God shows mercy and grace to us. 
And then we see just a few verses here in chapter 20 uh, about Cush and joining Egypt and Cush together. And this turns back more to uh, a scene of judgment. In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it. So not only has the scene shifted, but also the, the viewpoint of history has shifted, hasn't it? Because we were looking to the future, this glorious day when all these peoples would be worshiping together. But now he's almost like whiplash. We're back in the past, back in his day, where he's talking about things that are happening in Isaiah's time. Where Sargon is, uh, he is a, the king of Assyria, and Assyria is exerting its power and influence. Ashdod is in the land of the Philistines, right next to Israel. And so this is what Isaiah has been talking about throughout much of Isaiah. The power of the Assyrians coming down and conquering Israel and uh, the Philistines. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so going around stripped and barefoot. Now, this is in Old Testament prophecy a sign act. Uh, you see many of them throughout the prophets, a lot of them in Ezekiel, here in Isaiah, where they would do something like a, almost like a visual object lesson. And it conveyed prophetic truth through the action. And so the action of Isaiah stripping, uh, and there's debate about whether he was totally naked or whether he just took off his outer garments and walked around barefoot. Either way, he is, he is demonstrating uh, the, the humiliation and the destitution of those who are going to be conquered and taken into captivity. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush. So the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bare to Egypt's shame. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be dismayed and put to shame. So Egypt, Cush, now this kind of united power, they're going to be conquered by Assyria. And that's an amazing, it's amazing, isn't it? How quickly Isaiah can shift scenes. It's, I don't, I don't know, for lack of a better analogy, it's almost like somebody's got the remote control and you push a button and you go from Sports Center to a World War II action movie. You know, it's it, quick, you know, genre shifting scenes. And, and so at the end of Exodus 19, you've got this beautiful scene of joint worship together between whom? Egypt and Assyria, right? Worshiping the true God. But then, boom, you change the channel. And we're back in Isaiah's time, and he's looking at what's going to happen on the very near future. And Assyria and Egypt are not friends in that time. Assyria is going to conquer Egypt and is going to lead them astray or lead them back into captivity as rulers over them. In that day, the people who live on this coast will say, see what has happened to those we relied on those we fled to for help and deliverance from the king of Assyria. 
How then can we escape? That's a powerful lesson. And it shows one of the reasons why Isaiah is spending so much time uh, revealing what God is going to do to the nations. Why? Because Judah put their hope in the nations. When Assyria threatened them, where did they turn to for help? They turned to Egypt for help. And now the lesson here is the people that you turn to for help, they're going to be defeated. And this is all part of God's plan. And so what's the lesson? You shouldn't have trusted them. You shouldn't have trusted Egypt. You shouldn't have trusted these allies that you tried to arrange. You should have trusted God. Because he is your true deliverer. And so even though these messages are against Egypt or against Cush, they're spoken to the Israelite people. Seeing this is what God's doing. Look at things from a bigger perspective. And that's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? Even for us today, I mean, take this message, take some of the principles of this message and bring it forward to today. It's hard to step back and look at the big picture and see what God is doing. A lot of times we're overwhelmed by the moment. We're overwhelmed by this situation or this anxious thing that's happening in our lives. It's hard to step back and to see what God is doing in the bigger scheme of things. And as we saw in the beginning of chapter 19, it is really easy to put our trust in the things that we're comfortable with. So for Egypt, they put their trust in their pagan gods, in their Nile River, and all the, the uh, fertility and growth that it brought. They put their trust in their wisdom and all their learned men, and it brought them nothing. It brought them no help. Well, we do the same thing. We don't go to pagan gods and idols, statues. We don't rely on a river, but we rely on our knowledge. We rely on our wisdom. We rely on our ability to go to work and earn a living. We, we put our trust in human things, but the lesson is you need to put your trust in God. Because when these things fail you, God is still there and he will never fail you. And and God is, he's sovereign, isn't he? So whatever you see going on, whether in the little things, whether it's as simple as the lot cast into the lap, or whether it's the big things, nation moving against nation, God is sovereign. A storm brewing in the Atlantic and moving who knows where, God is sovereign. He knows it all. He is superintending providentially over it all. And that calls for trust from God's people. And I really think that's mainly what Isaiah is calling for from the Israelite people is obviously repentance. You've been in false worship. You repent, but you need to trust. Put your faith and your dependence upon God. And that's a great lesson for us even today. 